Welcome to The Thing About Austin, a podcast about Jane Austen's world. I'm Zan. And I'm Diane. And this episode, we're talking about dead leaves. That's right, people. <laughs> Setting the scene like we do so everyone kind of understands the context and where we're at in the book. This week, we're talking about Sense and Sensibility, one of our favorite moments with Marianne. <laughs> A little bit of background. This is the point where Edward, he's just arrived at Barton Cottage after being separated from the Dashwoods for several months. The Dashwoods had left Norland Park, their home, at the beginning of the novel after their father died. And now Edward is visiting them in their new abode and they are taking him about for a walk in the gorgeous countryside. And Marianne is going to have some feelings. <laughs> so here's how, how it reads in the text. They're, they're just having a back and forth. Um, and Eleanor asks Edward, have you been lately in Sussex? I was at Norland about a month ago. And how does dear, dear Norland look? Cried Marianne. Dear, dear Norland, said Eleanor, probably looks much as it always does at this time of year. The woods and walks thickly covered with dead leaves. Oh, cries Marianne. With what transporting sensation have I formerly seen them fall? How have I delighted as I walked to see them driven in showers by <laughs> me, by the wind, what feelings have they, the season, the air altogether inspired? Now there is no one to regard them. <laughs> they are seen only as a nuisance, swept hastily off and driven as much as possible from the sight. It is not everyone, said Eleanor, who has your passion for dead leaves. I just love that response from Eleanor. It's so good. She just, she has the best burns, just comes back so quick. It's amazing. And she's just like, I don't even know what to say about that. You know? <laughs> Like, doesn't quite understand. She's like, okay, good for you. <laughs> I love it. You and your dead leaves. So why is it important to understand this whole scene and this repeated allusion to Marion's passion for dead leaves? Yeah, okay. So this is like actually a really densely packed moment. Um, and then in order to really do justice to kind of unpacking all of that, it's best to kind of take a two-pronged approach to this. So there's definitely satire happening, obviously, between Eleanor and Marianne. There's definitely some ribbing going on here. Yeah, it's, a, it's also, you know, it's partially like a fun moment between two sisters. Like, we're supposed to laugh. Austin is, is enjoying herself right now. But it's actually a very layered moment in terms of it's addressing two kind of things. It's addressing romanticism, um, like capital R romanticism, in this kind of broad moment. And then it's also addressing, obviously, the very literal leaves and trees that she's talking about. So our approach for today's podcast is to kind of tackle it from this kind of two-pronged effect. And so we're going to start by talking about romanticism and nature before we dive into the literal dead leaves. As a caveat, romanticism as a movement is like ginormous. Yeah, there is a lot going on here. So if this is your area of expertise and you're screaming at us like, <laughs> you missed this, this, and that, you know, we're just giving the very broad strokes Again, to provide some context setting, but this is a topic that you could write whole books on. You could write whole books on subsets of this topic. We're talking about both a pretty long period of time and then a lot going on within it in terms of literature, art, philosophy. I mean, there's just, there's a lot. It's huge. So what we're doing, like Diane said, is like broad strokes. And then we're going to hit on a couple of very specific moments within the movement that are particularly relevant to what's happening here with Marianne. And the first thing that we want to kind of mention with Romanticism is that it's largely this movement that's happening in the second half of the 18th century that's kind of like reactionary or response, responding to the scientific and, and kind of rationalization of what was kind of called the Enlightenment period. And so Eleanor is kind of our, our scientific and rational stand-in here. So hi, Eleanor. Yeah, picture her in her lab coat and she's holding a beaker. <laughs> Agreed. 
so what's happening with romanticism, it's kind of responding to this. Um, it's, it's kind of like reactionary to it. So one of the things that we want to kind of address specifically in terms of what Marianne is doing is this idea of the cult of sensibility that's happening um, around this time period. And so the cult of sensibility is basically this idea that because we've been having this like intense rational thinking, it's about exploring feelings as kind of a moral vantage point and an intellectual like to be emotionally intellectual is kind of what we're exploring here so the cult of sensibility is this idea of like refined feelings and tastes and intense emotion as a type of intellect and sort of the idea that that makes you a better person and like a more authentic and sort of real person yes so that's why we get like a couple of like jabs from marianne every once in a while we're just like i just don't understand eleanor mama um because she thinks eleanor is way too unemotional about things. So she's like, I don't understand how she could like Edward, but okay. Or the, or the great moment where she's like, you know, the more I see of the world, the more I think I despair of ever finding love. And her mom's like, um, okay, honey, you're 16. It might be a little bit early <laughs> to give up on, on, this, on this idea. But she's very invested in big feelings. And it's a way that gives her throughout the novel, especially while she's engaging with, interacting with Willoughby, a lot of places where like, Eleanor will try to caution her and she'll be like, Eleanor, you don't understand the the big feelings. There's a little bit of a superiority complex. Like I am better because I just feel so much like you couldn't possibly understand. And maybe not even like I'm better, but like I'm different. Okay. (laughs) Yes, very much so. This kind of like she is a person apart because of her big emotions. And it's kind of interesting because one of the motifs of romanticism, again, this capital R romanticism, is the idea that there's also this kind of return to nature. During the Enlightenment, we start to see kind of industrial revolution is starting to happen. So there's a lot of loud noises and industrialization happening in, in epicenters, cultural epicenters. And so there's this movement towards like, let's let's get out of the cities, get back to nature. And that nature is where like we can get in, in tune with our best selves, kind of. This is when you get yourself a quote unquote rustic cottage in the countryside that has eight bedrooms and a full panoply of servants. Yes. Yeah. This is this is Marie Antoinette's version of finding a, a cottage on the Versailles estate. And you're like, yes, that's that's exactly what that means. Well, and one of the things that Marianne seems to be pursuing in this new locale is this idea of, again, this is a, a, a romantic motif, um, is the sublime. The idea that nature is so big and awe-inspiring, that it can actually kind of create epiphanies, um, that it just like, it can create terror and shock and awe, but that's like the ultimate experience as a romantic, is the sublime. Marianne's basically chasing a high of this feeling, like she wants to be just overcome with all these feelings and emotions, and that for her is just like the pinnacle of being. Yeah, and we're seeing this, and this and this isn't just, you know, this isn't just Marianne, this is obviously a very large cultural thing, and so we're seeing this in music and art and literature. And there's a couple of really wonderful examples of that. I think one of the most iconic, like visual representations of this is the painting Wanderer Above a Sea of Fog. So this is a painting by Caspar David Friedrich. If you look it up, you will probably recognize it. And if you don't at least recognize this painting, you will recognize this moment from the 2005 Pride and Prejudice when Keira Knightley as Elizabeth Bennet standing on the rocks and you're afraid she's going to fall. Don't worry, people. In real life, they had her like harnessed up (laughs) so that she wouldn't take a tumble. (laughs) It's essentially like... You see the back of this man, and he's looking out onto this landscape, and it's just all the feelings, you know? It is illustrating the sublime that was so popular with romantic artists yeah. and, you know, associated with emotions of greatness and founded on all that awe and terror and just sort of just being struck by, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm, I'm overcome. Yeah. And it's also really glorying in nature and landscape and 
this is all about like taking those long walks in the hills and mountains and thinking your thoughts and feeling your feels and doing paintings and writing poetry and you know all of that yeah and that being in nature is that ultimate sensation and so yeah we're supposed to be worried about lizzie standing on the cliffs because how else are you supposed to experience your sublime terror right you have to get right to the edge basically <laughs> like you have to get right to the edge like emotionally physically spiritually like that is the moment Exactly, exactly. So so this painting um, is, is one that it's very iconic. It's, it's also separating humans from nature, this kind of like he, the fact that he's above and separate from it. And the idea that, you know, you have to wander through it and you have to seek it. Like the fact that he's at the top of a mountain, you have to go after this. You have to seek it. You have to put effort into this. Yeah. It's not just going to come to you. Come on. If you're going to be a true romantic, you're going to go on that hike. You have to suffer for your art. <laughs> and Marianne definitely buys into that as as an emotional kind of payoff. And we see that too in, in the fact that Marianne is very, very invested in the literature of romanticism as well. So there's actually a moment when Edward is here visiting that he actually turns to Marianne and he's, he's speaking about Marianne and he says, she would buy up every copy of the works of Thompson, Cooper, Scott to prevent their falling into unworthy hands. And she would have every book that tells her how to admire an old twisted tree. See, this whole time she's been dogging on Edward, like he has no feelings. Obviously, this guy has a sense of humor. He can come up with the sick burns as well. <laughs> it's so unexpected coming from him. Actually, I thought it was Eleanor when I first read it. And I was like, nope, nope, that's that's actually Edward. Who knew he was capable of that? <laughs> so so we're seeing this idea that, that, and I kind of mentioned briefly that there's this, this shift for the Dashwoods, the fact that they have moved from Norland Park. Since their father has died, they've moved to Devonshire, which is a comparatively remote so we actually do have Marianne being able to like wax poetic about nature where she's at a little bit more effectively, perhaps, than she could at Norland, which is kind of a more subdued kind of county, <laughs> if you if you will. And it's funny because this is kind of the way that romanticism is is kind of framed here is that it is this kind of generational rift. And so like Eleanor is kind of just like shaking her head at Marianne all the time. And Marianne's like, no, I'm doing this right. I'm doing my generational pose correctly. Which is funny because they're basically the same age. But <laughs> I know. I know there's like two years between them. And I feel like to be fair, like I know I made a crack earlier about, oh, this is all about your moral superiority because you feel so much. I mean, Obviously, you know, the people who would favor more of that approach of the enlightenment and science, they also feel, oh, our way is also better. Oh, so definitely. Oh, definitely. Everybody thinks their way is better, basically. <laughs> well, and you see, you, you get Austin, you know, is more inside Eleanor's head than Marianne's head. So we're actually even seeing Austin kind of coming off from this post of kind of moral superiority. She clearly favors Eleanor's worldview more so than Marianne's. But while also still having an appreciation, I think, for the landscape and all that, you know, and this is something we'll talk about in a future episode. But we know that, I mean, Eleanor is a painter. So, like, obviously, she does appreciate these things. Yeah. It's just not something that maybe she will turn into, you know, a rapturous skit with many exclamation marks, you know? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Which, you know, that first passage that we read, I mean, it has exclamation points everywhere in it. When, when Marianne is talking about de dead leaves, it is with exclamation points. It needs to be noted that that is like, she is declaiming this stuff. If you are doing a family read aloud, you had you had better be just shouting that whole paragraph, <laughs> just yelling it out loud. And like partially swooning at the same time, right? I mean, honestly, I do feel like it would be like a good cathartic moment. I think I might have to do this. I'm going to make sure that I have that passage, like easy access to that passage. And I'm going to climb to the top of a mountain and I'm just going to yell it. I'm going to shout it as I look out over the valley and... What could be better? Like, what could be a better moment? You think I'm joking, but I'm going to do this. It's um, going to happen. I need to know about it when it happens because <laughs> I am here for that. I mean, in true modern fashion, I'd have to like 
turn it into a TikTok of or course. a reel or something. So- <laughs> Are you truly having a sublime moment if no one's there to document your sublime <laughs> moment? Like, I think, I think that's a legitimate philosophical question. <laughs> If the sublime moment in nature happens outside of the internet, does it really count? Did exactly. it really happen? Exactly. <laughs> well, and this idea of like of the popularity of this kind of like, you know, like the, we're talking about like this viral show off your awesome romanticism. That is a little bit like what Marianne is doing. She is performing her generational pose. So she's doing it in this way that's kind of acknowledging this kind of like larger Byronic pose. And by Byronic, we're talking about Lord Byron, um, who was another one of the poets from this era. And he is kind of considered the ultimate bad boy. There's that very popular phrase about him that he's mad, bad, and dangerous to know because he is just, he's the ultimate, you know, virile hero um, while also being intensely emotional. And um, also, you know, the sexy nature of him is also kind of like always roiling underneath any kind of talk about Byron. And and I think that, um, you know, because there was, there was actually like parents who were like, shh, we don't talk about Byron around our impressionable young women. because it's like a little bit scandalous. Yes. But, but the figure of Byron is actually really, really popular. This idea of the sweeping, moody, broody, dangerous figure. I mean, and we obviously are getting that with Willoughby. Just has impacted historical romance novels for just... So deeply. Yes. Yeah, pretty much any of like any figure that you've read in literature that kind of has a broody side, it's Byronic. But yeah, so Byron has a big impact and we're definitely getting a Byronic figure in Willoughby. The fact that he is like out in nature in a rainstorm when he finds Marianne and picks her up and carries her into the cottage. Like she's like, I have found my Byron because he also appreciates dead leaves. Because even in that scene where she's talking about dead leaves and, the, and Ellie, Eleanor is like, eh, not everybody appreciates dead leaves. She has this moment where she's like, no, my feelings are not often shared, not often understood, but sometimes they are. It's this thing of like, she's emulating this wider popular movement, but also I'm special. I'm unique. Like no one understands me. (laughs) Yes. And someone who does understand me will just really understand me. (laughs) It's like that thing, you know, where you go through that phase where you're like, oh, I listen to these musicians that only like two other people know about. (laughs) And you're like a little bit self-righteous about it. You know, (laughs) I knew them before they were cool is definitely a Marianne thing right now. I was into Cooper before everybody else was into Cooper. <laughs> no one can appreciate Cooper like I can. Um, yes, absolutely. That's 100% what Marianne is doing. Here. And I feel like also this is a good moment to say if you're listening, because I, I know this is a totally common thing. You've only If you've only ever read the words on a page, when we say Cooper, the writer we, we are referring to in the book, his last name is spelled C-O-W-P-E-R, but it's pronounced Cooper. So just a little aside for everyone there. Oh, because we have all been there where it's like you've read the word a million times and then you say it to someone and then they're like, what are you talking about? I mean, truly happens to me with UK place names all the all time. The time. <laughs> They're like, I have All no idea what you're talking about. You're like, ah. So we've kind of covered this kind of idea of romanticism. And I think, you know, again, this this idea of, of the kind of the pose of romanticism and the sublime. Um, and it leads to this appreciation of dead leaves that Marianne has going on here. But let's talk about the actual physical dead leaves now for a second, which sounds kind of weird, but like... It's about to get crunchy. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I thought that was so funny. Oh my gosh, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's fine, I'm good. <laughs> so um, in Sense and Sensibility, not just leaves obviously are important, but we're also talking about like trees in general are actually like everywhere within this novel. And it's kind of, again, one of those things where it's like you read this line and you're like, eh, it's a throwaway line. And then you start looking at trees and leaves and then you're like, no, this is literally in every location they go to, there's some kind of reference to trees. <laughs> 
So by looking at trees and leaves within this scene, we actually get this idea of kind of the broader symbolism of trees within the novel itself. So not just now, now we're not talking about like romanticism in general, talking about just the novel and how it works here. So some of what we're going to be discussing today is coming from this great article by Irene Pfizer, A Passion for Dead Leaves, Animated Landscapes and Static Canvases and Sense of Sensibility. And that is from the South Atlantic Review, the winter 2011, volume 76. So we're going to give just kind of like, again, broad strokes of what's happening here and kind of making our own connections to to some of the, the motifs that we're seeing here with, with the trees. So one of the first things that we need to acknowledge with all of the trees that happen in this novel is that obviously there is this idea of landscape being significant. Um, the fact that Marianne is interested in trees and um, the way that they aesthetically look is important. So we're actually getting the idea that like, oh, they're, the trees are, are blasted and twisted and like they're asymmetrical. And so there's this appreciation for the trees on this very deeply aesthetic level for Marianne. But like an aesthetic level that's not perfect yeah you know she doesn't she's not into manicured or sort of uniformity yeah she doesn't want like the nicely planted row of trees she wants trees that might have been struck by lightning and are half dead like that's the kind of tree she's into dead leaves dead trees (laughs) it's a thing and and so um this is actually kind of drawing from um austin is kind of drawing this connection from one of the authors of this period gilpin um he also admires partially dead trees and so the fact that marianne is is constantly talking about the kind of asymmetry of of leaves the asymmetry of trees it's definitely again making a nod to the cultural moment it's so that idea that that the most beautiful people have like a perfectly symmetrical face but in order to really be like very beautiful you want to have one thing that's like slightly off so it's like i have a perfectly symmetrical face but my teeth are like a little bit crooked i have a perfectly symmetrical face and i have one little beauty mark off to the side um so yeah so there's this this kind of appreciation for particularly not symmetrical trees (laughs) um which seems like a very weird tree aesthetic that you have to pursue a particularly not symmetrical tree i will be embroidering that on a cushion thank you Yes. And, you know, we're now going to fill up your um, Instagram feed with just asymmetrical trees. So so then, like, there's other reasons that the trees are important, though. And the first time that we kind of get references to trees is when the Dashwood sisters are still at Norland Park. And the fact that we are getting significant kind of reminiscences happening around these trees is important. The reason that we're getting all of these kind of reminiscences about these particular trees is because they are kind of... <laughs> We're gonna, I'm, I was totally going to pun here, is that they're deep-rooted in family <laughs> history and memories. I mean, obviously, yeah, because a tree is going to be, takes a long time, right, yeah. to grow a large tree. They are something that is oftentimes around for generations, yeah. depending on the species. Yeah, so, th- so Marianne has, um, you know, not surprisingly, some things to say about the trees at Norland Park. And so when, when we're talking about this idea of, like, family and memory, um, Marianne is actually at Norland Park when she says... And you, ye well-known trees, but you will continue the same. No leaf will decay because you are removed, nor any branch become motionless, although we can observe you no longer. Exclamation point. No, you will continue the same, unconscious of the pleasure or the regret you occasion, and insensible of any change in those who walk under your shade. Exclamation point. But who will remain to enjoy you? So the fact that she's, again, she's striking her pose... But she's pointing out, like, like memory is here. And even though she's not going to be there any longer, the trees are going to still kind of stand as this memory device for her and what, you know, where she's come from in, in Norland. 
you know, it's like measuring the growth of your children yeah, by the growth of a tree. I mean, exactly. I feel like it's not an uncommon tradition. I've definitely heard of people who you know, plant a tree when their baby is born and then you're kind of watching the two grow up. Yeah. And the fact that she is acknowledging that these trees will continue to change without her, but she will, you know, that they're ever, they're going to kind of always be the same for her in her memory because she's so deeply attached to this. And so we're also experiencing at Norland Park, um, her father's died at the very beginning of the novel and all of the Dashwoods are like deeply grieving what, you know, the passing of their father and, and husband. And so, you know, dead leaves <laughs> and trees, you know, this kind of cycle of life kind of thing happening. It's easy to laugh at Marianne and her kind of pose here, but it's very real, the grief that she's experiencing, the fact that yeah. she's going to not only, not only has she lost her father, but she can't even stay in the same place as where her father died. She has to be displaced from this. It's a physical removal both from this father that she's known her whole life and this home and this landscape that she's lived in her whole yeah. life, you know, to something totally new. Yeah. When she's sitting here grieving for the trees, it's grieving for her childhood. It's grieving for her father. It's grieving for the fact that she doesn't know what's coming up. So there's actually a lot of trauma and upheaval that's happening around these leaves and trees, which is kind of a fascinating, beautiful motif to see throughout the novel and how that kind of continues. Because, because it's kind of unexpected to see that kind of serious treatment of something that is so obviously also a running joke throughout the piece. This is this is why Austin is a genius, right? Because she's able to walk that tightrope so beautifully. So we're so we're actually seeing like trees don't just happen just at Norland or just in this passage with Arian, Marianne and her dead leaves. Like they're mentioned everywhere. Um, it kind of follows her throughout the book. And this is something that Irene Pfizer points out in her article, which is that, you know, if we're thinking about sense and sensibility, we can really you can kind of just really track Marianne's development through the book in her association to these trees, yeah. or as Pfizer calls them, arboreal constructs, <laughs> which I'm also going to be embroidering on a pillow. That one I want. Um, can I yeah. put my order in, please? Arboreal constructs. I just love that phrase. <laughs> again, we see Marianne. She's torn away from this landscape that she's known since childhood, You know, again, after the death of a much beloved father. And then she goes to London, where she has this emotional breakdown because... This man that she thought was in love with her completely betrays her. And then, you know, finally, she is able to settle with Brandon in a, a very kind of like Norland Park type yes. setting. So she kind of goes full circle and basically ends up once again surrounded by trees. <laughs> yeah. And they actually they actually kind of talk about like this that it's and they're old and established orchards, you know, so it's this kind of like, ah, oh, we've we've returned to safety and nature. <laughs> there's an orchard, there's an old yew arbor, it's all the things you ever needed. You know. The old tree still still has some appeal, Colonel Brandon. Marianne is just not into new construction, is what we're trying to say <laughs> here. Right. She wants something with a little bit of character. So it's been really kind of interesting to kind of see how this plays out in the novel. But we also see trees and like this idea of romanticism, this like the big feelings. We definitely see these play out in the adaptations, right? I mean, the adaptations, I feel like, play it up even like, more. significantly. <laughs> Anybody who's ever heard me talk about sense of sensibility, like uh, inevitably this will come up in conversation. <laughs> because... It happens in both adaptations. And I feel like at what point two adaptations in a row essentially redo the scene, it almost becomes canon. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm curious, even for people who have read Sense and Sensibility, if you were to quiz them, would say, oh, when they're at Cleveland, Marion definitely gets sick in a rainstorm and collapses and Brandon triumphantly rescues yes. her. Because it happens in both the 1995 adaptation and the 2001. Yeah. They are basically identical scenes. Like they make her illness seem very dramatic. There's downpouring rain. She's out there just sobbing about Willoughby. Quoting poetry, you know. <laughs> like really having a moment. She is in that moment. She is succumbing to nature's power. Yeah. Like She is overcome. Right. 
and has to be rescued by Brandon in, you know, this is his chance to really just be sweeping in <laughs> and doing all the things. And I have to say, the 2008 adaptation, the use of electric guitar <laughs> as the musical cue for Brandon. It's just, it's I mean, so mwah, mwah, mwah. it's all the things I ever wanted. <laughs> oh, it's so good. Yeah, the electric guitar, getting out in the rain, jumping on his horse. I mean, like... Every time I laugh, I just, I can't. And it's like, it's not like subtle at all. It's like, boom. <laughs> like, is that... Is that electric guitar? What's happening? Yes, yes it is. <laughs> What's going on? Uh, but it's, yeah, it's like they, it is like the directors have decided, you know what? We are also into dead leaves. That's like, right. I know. I know. And what's so funny is that if you read in the novel, it's like, it is nothing like that. It's completely prosaic. It's just, she gets a violent cold and then comes in. Like, there's no scene. There's no rescue. There's no fainting outside. It's just, oh, you know, she sat around in her wet shoes and stockings. And this is why you always listen to mother when she says, don't sit around in wet <laughs> shoes and stockings. You know what I mean? It's it's basically like a cautionary tale for children who don't listen. <laughs> Well, and I will point out, though, that in this exact passage where she falls sick, I mean, because it because it is very much so like didactic, like don't stay in your wet things. But it also <laughs> mentions trees. It says, you know, that yes. she's out walking around the shrub- shrubberies and grounds. She goes to the part of the Cleveland estate, quote, where the trees were the oldest, unquote. If anybody in all of Austin's literature would be able to communicate with Ents, it would be Marianne. 100%. And that's a little Lord of the Rings crossover for all you people. <laughs> Oh my gosh, yes. Um, so, so I mean, like, again, the, the, the fact that the adaptations have blown this romanticism so far out of proportion to what's actually happening is because I feel like they think, first of all, that the romantic pose and the sublime is, like, supposed to be more attractive. I don't know. I think there's also, like, a little bit of, like, a modern audience being like, really? She almost died because her feet got wet? So you have to really amp it up that she faints and that it's a whole yes. situation. Yes. Well, and, and we want Brandon, apparently for modern audiences, we want Brandon to be more active in his pursuit of Marianne. I, for some reason, you know, we're not, you know, appeased by the fact that he's just awesome. <laughs> we don't really get that much of their relationship in the it's novel. True. You it's know, true. It, I mean, he spends more time talking to Eleanor oh, than he spends talking yeah. to Marianne. Yeah, a lot of times you're also kind of like, like, how did they not end up together? Because they yeah, make exactly. a lot of sense together. <laughs> Well, what's funny, too, is that, that um, you know, in the 2008 adaptation, they do this for Brandon, where they make him seem really, like, very Byronic. But they also do it to Edward, because, like, they feel like, again, that Edward is a little bit of a of kind of a blank canvas. Please tell me you're going to talk about the wood chopping no, scene. I, I have to. I have to. Because in the 2008 adaptation, there's no reason for it. There is a reason for it, which is that you have cast Dan Stevens, that's, and we must true. make the most use of him in this role, obviously. <laughs> in order to make Dan Stevens seem even more attractive, we must try to replicate wet t-shirt Darcy and have Edward chopping wood in the rain. Andrew Davies, call me. I have so many questions for I you. I know, I know. Just to crawl into that man's brain. <laughs> Fascinating. But yeah, so that's, I mean, the adaptations really, 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 really lean in to the romantic and the, the nature that that's kind of omnipresent. These kind of inclinations toward trees are things that we see in, you know, some of her other heroines and some of her other work. So Fanny Price is always going on about trees. I have long maintained that Fanny Price and Marianne are basically ready-made besties. <laughs> like the two of them really just go on about trees. Fanny also loves Cooper. Yes. Like, they could have book club. It would be great. And Anne Elliot, she will be thinking about autumnal leaves at her ripe old age of 27. <laughs> There's one particular scene where she's out walking with the Musgroves and Captain Wentworth and She's basically listening to Captain Wentworth and Louisa make eyes at each other. And she's over there just like, oh, the autumnal leaves. And kind of related that to her yeah. status as an old deadly, yes. essentially. Yes. So. 
And of course, we also have Benwick in Persuasion, who, again, our favorite oh, emo boy. Benny is so good. He is romantic, capital yes. R, just embodied. Yes. So. so he's walking, you know, he's walking along the seascapes, having his sublime moments um, while thinking about poetry. Again, a guy that Marianne could have definitely fallen oh, for. Oh, 100%. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> Their book club would be actually very, very interesting. <laughs> And all those examples are things that are also going to get their full episodes at one point in time. So that's why we just want to briefly mention them here. But yeah, again, something that you're seeing, you know, coming up over and over again in Austin's works. She's very aware of nature and makes that, I mean, trees, whenever they come up in her in her texts, it's usually for a reason. We hope you enjoyed this foray into dead leaves again <laughs> at the height of summer. <laughs> hope it was a, a bit of a cool down episode. That's right. That's right. Think again about those crunchy leaves and <laughs> just... Calgon, take me away, as it were. <laughs> you can find us on Instagram at the thing about Austin and on Twitter at Austin underscore things. And you can email us at the thing about Austin at gmail.com. And if you enjoy what you've been hearing, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you feel so moved, click that five stars button and maybe even leave us a positive review. So stay tuned for next episode where we'll be talking about General Tilney's pamphlets in Northanger Abbey. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.